0: Climbing Gold is a production of duct tape and beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration.
1: Hey everyone, a few weeks ago, we talked with author and international bestseller Michelle Wooker about how humans take risk. She's written two books on risk, You Are What You Risk and The Gray Rhino, and they both influence how we thought about putting this season together. You Are What You Risk introduces a couple key concepts that we found particularly applicable to climbing. Each of us carries our own unique risk fingerprint. It's created at the intersection of our genetics, lived experiences, and the choices we make moving forward. Amongst other things, how we climb, who we climb with, and how we prepare but it also relates to every aspect of life, whether it's our personal lives, careers, and family. So we wanted to dig deeper because one, we found it interesting, and two, because we are all trying to make the best decisions possible in a pursuit where physical risk is baked in. During our conversation, Michelle asked Alex a couple of questions. As you listen, I think it's kind of cool to ask those questions of yourself too. Some might be easier to answer, others are more difficult.
0: Welcome to Climbing Gold. Like, what is the definition of risk? You know, like, what is risk taking? Like, start us at the beginning, and then we can get into the finer, you know, like, how do people differentiate it?
2: Sure. Well, when I started delving into the finer points of risk, I realized that nobody talks about it in the same way. The classical economic definition of risk is an uncertainty that you can assign a probability to. So it's actually not so uncertain you can assign a number, although that number may maybe pulled out of the air you know who knows where the number came from so you know in finance people talk about risk as something that's very quantifiable and people in daily life often mean uncertainty when they're talking about risk or at least a part of it is uncertainty that they don't really know what's going to happen and each one of us brings our certain biases our experiences our perspectives to how we see and define risk I'll often ask people, well, "How do you just define risk?" And some people will will say something negative around you know danger, peril, loss. And other people will talk about uh, you know opportunity, you know adventure, gambling. And it depends on the industry because people in very different professions have different biases that they bring to risk. So for some people, risk is is a chance to get something you want. For other people, it's the possibility of losing something. And people don't often think about it enough as something that depends. You know, a risk can be something good. It can be something bad. A risk is making a choice when you don't really know how things are going to turn out. And each one of us makes 35,000, give or take, choices every single day, which means 35,000 risks every day, but how often do we take a serious look at what risk means to each one of us, how we make the risk choices that we do, and what that says about us to the people around us?
0: And and so what prompted you to write The Gray Rhino? And actually, and and backing up, you know, what is The Gray Rhino?
2: So The Gray Rhino is a metaphor to get us to pay fresh attention to the big, obvious risks around us. You know, the the obvious things that we often neglect because they're so obvious. And I created it really to help people to make an emotional connection with the big, scary dangers coming at them. So you think of the rhino, big, two tons with the horn, and it's gray because interestingly, as you might've noticed, all rhinos are gray. But there's no species called the gray rhino. There's the black rhino, which is gray, and there's the white rhino, which is gray. <laughs> I'm
0: like, that just blew my mind. I'm like, having seen seen rhinos in, in nature, I'm like, you're right, they are all gray rhinos.
2: <laughs> so it seemed to me to be a great way to point out that we're not really as good at dealing with obvious things as we might think we are.
0: You know i have a lot of friends now who have died in the mountains who consider themselves very cautious and like said that they're not risk takers and said that they're doing everything well and you know with several of them you could say like oh it was a freak thing like this crazy thing happened but you know when enough people die that way you're like it probably isn't a freak thing you know it probably is a little bit more of a a systemic you know call it what you will but it's like basically it seems like there's a huge blind spot in evaluating your own risk fingerprint because uh, particularly in the climbing community. I mean, everybody thinks they're doing it right. Everybody thinks they're being safe and cautious. And yet, clearly not everybody is because it doesn't always work out that well. So, you know, I mean, it seems like the, the crux of all of this is is actually understanding yourself well enough. So, so, like, how does one evaluate their own risk fingerprint?
2: Well, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken?
0: I have no idea. I mean, I've taken so many, I mean, it depends how you define it, like a risk that leads you closest to death or, or the thing that seems like the biggest, you know, like the, the showiest risk would be like soloing El Cap, let's say, or free soloing El Cap. But, um, but in a way, you know, that's also the thing I was most prepared for. I've taken tons of other risks that are, that are arguably sketchier, but they're all like very, uh, unknown, you know, the things that happened by myself in the middle of nowhere and you know, like trying to get out of some Canyon and like falling down a thing. And I I don't know. It's like, how do you, I would have, I mean, I actually I have written a whole book about it. Who knows? You know, it's like, there's so many, you know, it's like, yeah, there's so many things.
2: Well, there's actually, there's two kinds of risks that, that you can take. There's the the active risk, the, I'm going to go climb this thing. And then there's the, the passive risk, the thing that you don't do to protect yourself from the risk do you you find that your risk tend to be in in one of those categories or the other
0: yeah more in the active risk for sure like doing a thing or like and particularly when i'm by myself because i find that climbing with partners i'm or like climbing with other people or climbing in front of other people i'm much more likely to sort of play by the rules a little more and like do things properly but, you know, I find that if I'm by myself in the middle of nowhere or I'm like getting quite fatigued or conditions are weird or whatever else, you start to just play it a little bit more fast and loose where you're like, whatever, let's just like get her done. And then I'm definitely more inclined to take take personal risks.
2: It's also important to ask what kind of risks uh, you've taken in different parts of your life. So obviously this sort of, you know, safety and, uh, you know, recreation part of your life and career part of your life, you've taken certain risks. But what about in other areas, say finance, health, relationships? What would you say the biggest risks are in those areas?
0: I, would, I wouldn't say I've taken that many risks in other ways. You know, I, I save for retirement. I'm I have no debt. I'm uh, staying like stable long term relationships. It's all it's all pretty uh pretty non risky in the rest of life. And you know, I never drink or do drugs. I've like basically like no. Yeah. I don't know. I'd say very risk-averse in the rest of life. I've never gambled because I think it's totally stupid. You know, things like that. <laughs> I'm th- this might be a bit of an aside, but I'm like, do you... What do you think is an appropriate level of risk? You know, it's like everybody has their individual risk fingerprint, but like, is there an optimized amount of risk that people should be taking either physically or, or sort of socially, you know, um, like personally as, as life? What, what uh, you know, should people be taking more risk, less risk, thinking about it differently?
2: Well, I think something that looks like an objective amount of risk is actually a very, very different amount of risk for two people. Like, for example, I'm five foot three. If I go down a dark alley at three o'clock in the morning, that's a very different risk from some six foot three inch linebacker. Or in, in social situations, uh, there's some research that shows that women are more likely to take quote unquote social risks and like speaking up and saying the thing that, uh, that is not welcome. Um, but women have a lot of experience doing that. you know, having been myself the only woman in the room in a lot of you know high finance meetings or you know strategy meetings, um, I've had the experience a lot of other women have had is that if you speak up, you either get told that you're you know aggressive, that you don't know your place, or people totally ignore you. And then some guy says the same thing and everyone says, oh, that's brilliant. And you're like, that, that guy just to credit for my own idea. And so women are a lot more used to taking social risks. And so on the one hand, it's a bigger risk. but on the other hand, they've got the experience, they've got the risk muscle for that. and so it's easier for them to do that. I like to think about risk for each person as as a portfolio. It's like you were saying that, you know, in your personal life, you in your finances, you're you're pretty conservative and and so that you can take all of the risks in the thing that you care about most in the climbing. And that's a really smart approach. I often recommend that people look at the risks that they're taking in different parts of their life. You know if they're all in the red zone, we'll figure out which ones you're going to dial down uh, because you need some areas where there is safety and comfort that you can go back to, you know, you've got a safety net if something doesn't go right. And so there's no ideal amount of risk
0: yeah, though, I'm not exactly talking about things that you can't anticipate because like in, in climbing, all the risks are easily anticipated, like say an avalanche or like something cutting loose or like rock fall, or, you know, it's like there are only a handful of things that can go wrong while you're climbing, you know, like getting hit by lightning, having a storm come in, having your rope cut over a rock. It's like, you know, realistically, there are only like 10 or 15 ways that you can die in the mountains, but the, the difficulty is knowing which of them is the most likely to occur or, or when they're going to occur. And it's like, how do you evaluate those kinds of risks when it's like, you know what the what the possibilities are, but how do you judge the likelihood of them? You know what I mean, like, po- if, if you have no real data for it, it's like, yeah. you know, and, and then how do you separate out the sort of psychological toll where it's like some of them you're very afraid of because, you know, it's a horrific way to die, but it doesn't actually make it any more likely or not, but it's just a lot scarier. It's like, how do you separate out that, that psychological toll when you're trying to objectively evaluate risk
2: humans are really obsessed with predictions and forecasting and assigning probabilities to certain outcomes and most of us don't appreciate just how tenuous some of those predictions are Uh, you know like you know the the forecast in the morning says 30 percent rain and and you have no idea, and your personality is going to depend on whether you take an umbrella just in case or whether you like, ah, 30%, that's nothing. It's less important to predict and accurately assign a probability to something than it is to have thought about how you're going to respond and, and practiced how you're going to respond. If you've only got a dozen or so possibilities in front of you you want to have run scenarios for all of those and thought through ahead of time you know what you might do so that you've got some options that that you can pull very quickly out of your brain when any of those happens because as far as something actually happening or not our ability to predict is is really questionable where probability can be helpful is if you've got to choose among a bunch of options you've only got so much time to prepare for you can look at the numbers of people who've died by lightning or by this or by that and you can ask yourself okay is there anything i could do about it you know there's there's not as much you can do about lightning if you're out there and there's no place to to seek cover so look at the at the, the probability of something you look at the likelihood that you can do something about it uh, and then you can sort of narrow your list and focus on the things that are the most probable and the most impactful or the the combination of those uh so it's it's a way of prioritizing if you've got limited preparation time
0: yeah that makes sense focus on the things that you can control yeah, it's it's interesting because almost every risk we take in climbing is a gray rhino. Like I said, you know, there are only a handful of them. You can quantify them. Like, you know what they are. It's like, you know, it's like basically they're all gray rhinos and yet tons of climbers still die every year. I, I don't know. It's like, it's hard to know what you do with that. You know, it's like, is that a result of of the risk ecosystem? Is that people's individual risk fingerprints? Like they're taking too much risk or is that just misunderstanding the risks in front of them and, and making mistakes basically?
2: I get asked a lot, is there an ideal risk fingerprint? And my answer is always that you you can't choose your risk personality. You can't choose the things that happened to you outside, Um, but you can choose the things that fit best with your innate personality and how your past has conditioned you. And so if someone is say an inexperienced climber, but who's got this really go getem adventurous personality, then that person should choose someone who's much more experienced and much more cautious to be around them. Um, and for all sorts of other personalities, think about what offsets your weaknesses the things that could put you at more risk and in more danger and think about where you have strengths that could help your climbing partner. So think about how the whole thing comes together, you know, understanding your own risk fingerprint, understanding the risk fingerprint of your partner and looking at how each of you can strengthen your partner. you can offset their weaknesses and take advantage of their strengths and so that's really how the risk fingerprint analysis can help your strategy it helps you to understand what makes you more comfortable stretching to achieve something you haven't yet been able to do and if you know that you tend to run headlong into something you'll have a better idea of what can light that light bulb over your head and say, okay, take a breath, step back. The other part is that experience can cut both ways. Uh, On the one hand, experience develops this sort of risk muscle. You know, you get a much better sense of what's more likely to go well or not, or what kind of risk you're comfortable taking, and you'll tend to stretch farther and farther over time. But if you go for too long without something going wrong, you're much more likely to get sloppy because the risk isn't top of your mind anymore. So what you wanna do is create a, a habit of making sure that you're reminding yourself that something could go wrong. It's what, what airplane pilots or uh, you know hospitals do, they come up with, with checklists, make sure that all of this is there and you do those checks whether or not you're feeling super confident that day because there's a correlation between overconfidence and bad risk decisions
0: hmm yeah in climbing there's a publication every year called accidents in North American Mountaineering that basically just lists all the accidents of the year and it's always been an incredibly useful tool to learn from other people's mistakes because realistically in climbing you you rarely experience bad accidents because if, if you did you know they're often fatal so you're never really going to experience them yourself but then you still have to learn about them and read about them in order to prevent them. And it's exactly what you're describing. It's like basically every year you read accidents around the North American mountaineering. You get a little reminder of like, these are all the terrible things that can happen. <laughs> and you're like, and now hopefully I can avoid them myself.
1: Michelle, where where does failure fit into all this? You you obviously have to live through an experience to learn from it. But generally speaking, what does failure teach us about about the risks we take?
2: Well, I think that that comfort level with the idea that you you might fail is really important to risk taking. It's, it's like, you know, Thomas Edison saying, you know, I, I didn't fail a thousand times or 10,000 times or however, however many he said. He said, I, I, I learned that many ways that it didn't work and it got me to where I needed to be. And so many people won't do something because they're afraid of failing. They're obviously afraid of the uncertainty, but they see the risk so much more as loss and they can't see the possibility of succeeding so it really depends on what you're what you're visualizing in the first place and it also helps to do a bit of a brainstorm uh, you know what what do you see when you think of risk you know, how do you define the word it's different for for many many people
1: obviously the only way to avoid all risk in climbing is just to not climb like right We've all chosen to uh, accept some level of risk in order to harvest meaning, joy, challenge, fulfillment, fulfillment, whatever it is, out of our climbing. Those physical risks that that you took, Alex, they've had a huge upside beyond just climbing or fulfilling a dream. That you know, they've they've helped you create some bedrock stability, um, financially,
0: professionally, personally, in in this incredible life you've built. You know. Well, that's, that's what's so interesting. though is like, I would say they were all risks worth taking, unless the next one goes sideways and I die in an accident. And then you're sort of like, well, maybe they weren't worth taking. And that's, and that's what I think is the crux of all this kind of stuff is that, you know, all it takes is getting one choice wrong for it to sort of cast a doubt on all the other choices.
2: But If you're dead, you're not doubting.
0: Well, yeah, you're not <laughs> but everybody that. else. But everybody else is second guessing the choices that you made up to that point. You know, it's like up till now, it's easy for me to justify all the choices that I made. It's like, oh, you know, I've been doing a great job of evaluating risk. But if I get the next decision wrong, then people will assume that that everything I've, you know, sort of decided up until here was was probably a little sketchy.
2: But it sounds like from what you've been saying that a lot of claimers really are aware of the, the role of of chance and luck and stuff that you don't know about. And so if you take good decisions and make make all the preparations, about the things that you can control, it also reduces the likelihood of something going wrong. And it might've gone wrong an awful lot sooner if you made bad risk decisions earlier on. It's very important to ask yourself what, what your biggest fear is, what your biggest hope. Some people don't ask themselves explicitly what the biggest hope they have is. Or if they're looking at a specific risk and they're not sure what's holding them back, sometimes identifying the fears can help you to feel more control over them, just by the act of identifying them.
1: I guess on on that topic, I'm, I'm curious. Like for each of you, what are your biggest fears and hopes? Is that is, is that something you could do off the cuff?
2: I think it's an it's complicated. I think in a systems dynamic way. And so boiling that down is is really hard for my brain. It just doesn't work that way. I think it would be too hard to yeah, explain enough. in a, I, short I a few seconds.
0: I actually don't think it's... A, for me, it's like greatest fear, dying a terrible death. You know, greatest hope, living a well-adjusted life to old age. You know, like having like playing with my grandkids when I'm old or something. You know, it's like that's a pretty straightforward... Because, I mean, I feel like that just sums up a life well-lived.
2: That sounds like a pretty darn well-lived life. Fears, hopes, uh, desires, anxieties, understanding those all go into your self-awareness of your risk fingerprint. And the more self-aware you are, the more control you'll feel over the risks that you take, and you'll hopefully end up taking better decisions. That's why it's so important to understand who you are so that you can take the risks that are right for you, both in kind and in degree, and in the amount of preparation you put in to make sure that you do them right.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a full-length episode.